0: There is a phrase used today by the young people of this generation to refer to problems they encounter in the real world. And I'm sure you've heard it when they say, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. According to the Urban Dictionary, it's a bit of an ironic statement used to describe situations that someone is going through and dealing with, but the problem or the funny thing is that it's actually not much of a struggle for those of another generation. It dramatizes something that is non critical, yet perhaps a minor frustration, but for that person in this millennial generation is a great struggle. Let me give you some examples if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about. For example, and it's example only, I'm on a diet and I can't eat potato chips. And someone offers them to me. I want to eat them, but I can't. So I say, the struggle is real. I can't remember, for example, my password or my Instagram account so that I can take my picture and upload it for the world to see. The struggle is real. The branded shirt on sale isn't in my size. The struggle is real. I have to go to school on Saturdays. The struggle is real. I'm forced to learn Mandarin Chinese as a second language. The struggle is real. I can't go to Taiwan on a vacation and said I'm forced to go to Baguio. The struggle is real. I have to eat the leftovers of what I ate last night. The struggle is real. The straw they gave me for my bubble tea is too small that I can't suck up the boba pearls. The struggle is real. The sad part about us using this statement to describe what we could just consider minor frustrations is that it dumbs down the real struggle that we have in this life. A real struggle that all of us must face every day and at every moment. There is a very real struggle that affects people of all economic levels and of every ethnicity. And that struggle is the struggle between love for the world and love for God. Something the Bible tells us is mutually exclusive. You cannot serve two masters. This is a struggle for today. It was a struggle when James wrote his epistle. And so James addresses this struggle in his letter in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4, as we study verses 1 to 10. Because how we deal with this struggle speaks louder than words to an unbelieving world that proclaims our genuine faith in Jesus Christ. How we process and act out on this struggle gives great evidence of our genuine faith in Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world. Because if you say you love Jesus with all of your heart and you are inviting others to join you in this wonderful relationship with Christ, but they see that you are struggling with loving the world then they may perhaps think that Jesus really isn't someone worth giving up their lives for. For example, you may tell your friends and your family members who are unbelievers that a relationship with Jesus Christ is the single most important thing in your life. And you proclaim that loudly. Jesus is the most important thing in my life. But they see that in your worship of Him corporately, at church, or privately in your own personal quiet time. Somehow, the worship of the single most important person in your life takes not much of your time. It is an under-priority, prioritized by other more important things like social events or sporting events on Sundays or a movie or dinner with friends or a musical or whatever else you prioritize over the worship of God. This will confuse the very people that you are saying that Jesus is the single most important person in your life. To address this issue of a very real struggle between the world and Christ, James, in these ten verses, will give us two realities and four ways to fight the draw of the world. So if you want to outline your notes in such similar fashion, I will talk about the two realities James talks about of our life in four ways to fight the draw of the world. Let's break this down. The first reality found in verses 1 to 3. James chapter 4 verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James begins by asking a question. Where do the conflicts come from that we fight in and of ourselves and also with others. And he hits the nail right on the head when he says that oftentimes the conflict in our own lives and with others begin with a struggle for pleasure. And pleasure, defined in verse 1, is a satisfaction of desires, a fulfillment of the desires and our wants. It is that which we will spend countless monies, resources, time, and energy to try to obtain. The satisfaction of personal desires, pleasures in other words, is what most in this world are looking forward to. And it is the single thing also for Christians, unfortunately, that we also strive for. Because if you assess the actions of your life, let me ask you, why do you do what you do in your life? Why do you do what you do? Is it for you to obtain a better life? Probably is it for you to find pleasure most likely is it for you to have an easier life for sure You see we as Christians are no different in our sinful nature than the rest of the world we have the same pursuit the pursuit of pleasure And that's the first reality number one of your taking notes reality number one we pursue pleasure In this pursuit of pleasure, what does it lead to? Look at verses 2 and 3. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. James says that the drive for pleasure will lead to the natural result of lust. Desiring what is not yours, or what you cannot obtain, or what you cannot get. But yet, you covet it, because you are seeking pleasure. And so you stare at the car that someone else has. You envy the house that someone else lives in. You covet the spouse that someone else is married to. You desire the life that someone else lives You want the money that someone else has. In fact, in verse 2, James gives the most extreme of example that the pursuit of pleasure can lead to. And the Bible says it leads to murder. You may be saying, there is no way I will commit this in my lifetime for the pursuit of something that I want. But what James is doing here is that he's showing the extent of the lengths we will go to to get what we cannot have. This has been playing out since the beginning of time, since the fall, when in scriptures, if you remember the story of Cain and Abel, one willing to go to great lengths, even murder to get what they cannot have. Even in history, we see this played out. This is the result of someone who lives their life only to satisfy their pleasures, this is the extent of where they will take their life. Think of all the people who will risk their families, their reputation, their prestige, only to fulfill simple pleasures. And often those pleasures are temporary. And they only feel sad when they are caught. We wonder why men or women... Would have one night stands with spouses that are not theirs. We wonder why they would be willing to throw away 30 years of marriage, to shatter their reputation for the simple pleasure of one night. And yet they are. And if you ask them why they did it, they don't have an answer. And they feel remorseful after they've been caught. But the Bible tells us in that moment of pleasure, our desire for it, we will go to great lengths to get it, if that is our pursuit. And so as verse 2 tells us, we fight and we battle. And it does not satisfy our soul. And yet, James writes in verse 3, that we can ask God to help satisfy our souls. And yet when we pray and ask of God, somehow He does not answer our prayers. And the answer lies in verse 3. Why do our prayers for the satisfaction of our lives often do not get answered by God? Because, verse 3 tells us, we ask for things not in accordance with God's will. We ask for our own desires and our own pleasures, not His will. And so we ask for money, Not so that we can give more to the work of God. We ask for more money so that we can have a more extravagant vacation. We ask for more time, not so that we can spend it serving Him. We ask God for more time so that we have more time to play video games. We ask God for more strength, not so that we can do greater things for Him, that we can have greater things, greater strength to fulfill the desires of our heart. We pray for healing so that we can somehow get back to a state in our daily lives when we were feeling great before our sickness. We pray that we would be healed so that we can go back to work. We often do not pray for God to heal us so that we can be a living testimony for the Lord if He so wills. No wonder our prayers are not answered, James states. They are prayers based on the satisfaction of our own desire. Prayers for our pleasure rather than the prayer For God's pleasure. But if we learn to pray according to God's will, it completely changes what we pray for. If we pray for God's pleasure, then it changes the way we pray and what we're willing to accept from Him. But the human, sinful person like you and me are fighting for self pleasure, even in spiritual things like prayer. It is a reality we must be aware of, something the Bible says we should not pursue. But I want you to note, I'm not saying that it's not okay to enjoy the things that God has given us in life. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes is very clear that we can enjoy God's blessings as He has given them to us. What is being warned here is that we have a singular sole purpose of pursuing pleasure as the purpose of our life. The second reality James talks about is in verses 4 to 6. Look with me. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Has anyone ever called you an adulterer, a harlot, a slut? What would you do? If someone ever called me those things, I'd probably punch them in the face. And yet James here blatantly, openly in verse 4 calls Christians those things. An adulterer is one who leaves the one they are called to love and cheats on them with another. And this is the very term James uses to call Christians who seek the pleasures and pursuits of this world. And I love this book because it is so plainly written. If you are friends with the world, that means you are an enemy of God. And if you are to be a friend of God, then you must be an enemy of this world. So simple, because here is a second reality, if you still didn't get it. Number two, friendship with the world means you are an enemy of God. Friendship with the world means you are at odds with God. As someone once noted, no man who makes worldly success his claim, can also be a friend of God. It doesn't work that way. This is the same theme echoed throughout Scripture. You can't have it both ways. If you desire friendship with someone who is in opposition with someone else, then you have to pick a side. You remember when you were in kindergarten or in grade school or perhaps even in high school? Has anyone ever told you, one of your friends, ever come up and told you, If you're going to be my friend, then you can't be that other person's friend. I'm sure we've all experienced that. Somehow, as we become adults, we think, oh, that was so silly. When we were so young, we dealt in black and white. And so now we gray out what is supposed to be black and white in the scripture. And so we think, you know what? I don't like that. I don't like the fact that if I'm going to be friends with God, then I have to be an enemy to the world and vice versa. So therefore, I'm going to be friends with everybody. And James corrects us and he says, no, it doesn't work that way. The things of the world and the things of Christ do not have any common ground. You cannot be friends with both. If you are a lover of sports like I am, you know the rivalry in the NBA between the L.A. Lakers and the Boston Celtics. It is a heated rivalry that goes back almost hundred years. If you love and follow and are a fan of the L.A. Lakers, you naturally hate the Boston Celtics. If you ever go to Boston and wear an L.A. Lakers jersey, you'll probably get beaten up. Now, if you can understand that rivalry, perhaps the closest that I can think of here is perhaps between Ateneo and LaSalle. You can't like both. You either bleed blue or you bleed green. You can't say, oh, I bleed cyan. Cyan is the color you get when you mix green and blue. You either bleed green or you bleed blue. People will laugh at you if you say, I bleed cyan. I like both teams. If you bleed cyan, it is as ridiculous as if you say, I am friends with the world and friends with Christ Sorry, you've got to choose one. You want to know how God feels about all this? Take a look at verses 5 and 6. Here in verses 5 and 6, James gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. James writes, verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You see, the Bible is very clear. God is jealous for us. And what James does in verse 5 is that he summarizes all the other scriptural truth about this in Exodus, in Psalm, in Zechariah. And he tells us that God is jealous for us. It is a jealousy that is justified. Because if something belongs to you, then you can rightfully be jealous for it. A husband should be rightfully jealous for his wife and vice versa. But there is also another emphasis here. The Lord longs for His children's love and devotion in return. You see, we are His children. And we belong to Him because we have been bought from the fiery pits of hell to the blood of His own Son. And so it must greatly bother Him that we have adulterated ourselves to the world. And so the Bible tells us He rightfully yearns for us to love Him back. You see, God didn't create us as robots to automatically return His love to Him. But He has given us choice. He has given us will. He has given us responsibility. And because of this, He desires of His children, as He is jealous for them, He lovingly yearns that we love Him in return instead of loving the world. Now, some of us may think that God is sitting off somewhere in the third heaven, far above. How can He love us when He is so far away? And how can I love Him when He's so far away? But look what the Bible says in verse 5 The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. This is not a God who is far off somewhere in heaven. This is the third person of the Godhead. God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit who the Bible tells us dwells in us. And He is in our lives and He stands with us and He is jealous for us. And Yet we blow Him off. For example, if you are married and your spouse is standing right next to you, Cindy is standing right next to me, and there is a beautiful woman... Who walks in front of us. Can you imagine yourself or me ever saying. Wow. You are such a beautiful woman. Cindy isn't she a beautiful woman. I wish I married her. Now you may think that. But you don't dare that that ever comes out of your mouth. Because your wife will beat on you. But more than that. You would never say that because it would absolutely embarrass your spouse, right? Would you ever do that? Your spouse is standing right next to you, the one you are married to, and you are gawking and loving upon someone else. Or if you are a parent and your children are right next to you, and they're right there next to you, And you see another child, and you go up to that child. I love you so much. I wish you were my child. You are so much better than my child. Who's standing right there? Would you ever say that? Of course not. You would put your child in therapy for years. Why don't we say that? Because it would embarrass them. Or if you were a teenager with your parent, standing next to them, And with your parents right next to you, you meet another set of parents who are not your own, and you come up and you give them a warm embrace, and you say within hearing of your parents to this other couple, you mean more to me than my own parents, you have done more for me than my own parents, I love you, I wish you were my parents. How would it make your parents feel? You would never say that, because it would absolutely embarrass your parents who are standing right next to you right social norms and etiquette prevent us from saying those things and yet here is the ironic thing god in the person of the holy spirit who saved us from the fiery pits of hell who loves us with an eternal love we have no problem with him standing right next to us living in our life just throwing ourselves to the world and saying Oh, we love you. You offer so much more than what God can offer. And we don't even bat an eye. How does that make God feel? Now, we would think that in the next verse, we would read, And for those who adulterate themselves before the world, as God lives in the hearts of men and women who are His children... He throws down fire and brimstone to those who do such things. We're surprised. Because look what is written in the next verse. But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Wow. When we throw ourselves to the world, God Gives more grace. He gives us more of what we do not deserve. I want you to let that sink into your minds. Not only at this moment, but this week, as you go back and read these verses we're studying this morning. When we reject Him, when we pursue the world as adulterers of our spiritual life, he gives us more of what we do not deserve. The God that we abandoned this world could strike us dead at any moment. He could punish us with an initial response of us with our wandering ways, with a punishment that we so justly deserve, and yet He does not. He lavishly gives us what we do not deserve instead. And that's how He wins us over. He wins us over by His grace and His love. He gives grace to those who humbly remain in Him even more. And His grace should be enough to remind us to win over the struggle of pleasure versus Christ. Because the pleasures of this world will never live up to what we put in. Did you hear that? all of what we put in to pursue worldly pleasures will never return the satisfaction we so desire. But when we seek the things of Christ, the return is always more than you can imagine. So it is a game of investment. It is a choice of investment. Will you invest your life into a reality that you will never get back what you put in The world will take what you give them and spit you back out. Or will you invest your life in one who when you invest your life in him, the return is always more than you can imagine. He gives more grace. So what's going to be? Here's the reality. Do you desire friendship with the world or friendship with God? The choice is yours. Now you may say, Pastor, you've identified two realities that our sinful human nature is drawn to the pleasures of this world and that friendship with the world means we are enemies with God, but you have offered no solutions for how we can fight the draw of worldly pleasures. And the draw is so strong. How can we fight this draw so that we can have sweet fellowship with God? Well, I won't offer you solutions, but James does. And in verses 7 to 10, he offers four ways to fight off the draw of The world's pull. The struggle is real, but the solution is assured. Did you get that? The struggle is real, but the solution is assured. In these four verses, there are ten imperative verbs, ten commands for how we can fight the draw of the world. First one, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right off of verse 7, the first way to fight the draw of worldly pleasure, number one, submitting to God by resisting the devil. Submitting to God by resisting the devil. What does submission to God mean? It means we yield. We surrender our desires. We yield our own will and make what is important to God what is important to us. When we submit to Him, we prioritize Him above everything else. We do not submit to God when we do not put Him as our priority. And that's the problem of a lot of people. You know, people have told me, Pastor, why are you so annoyed when people come late to church? In fact, they say that I have a stare. A special stare for men and women who come late to church I would just glare. It's called the Pastor Steve late stare. It is not because I am a prompt person by nature. I'm actually quite late. But it's when you prioritize the things of God, when you prioritize the things of God, then your actions will reflect that priority. Because the world is always going to give you another option that is more important than God and the worship of Him. There's always something to do. More sleep. More time. God doesn't mind. But you know what? I've been a pastor for more than 15 years. I've heard all of the reasons. There is no way that you can get into a car accident every Sunday. There is no way that your tire is flat every Sunday. There is no way that your alarm clock doesn't go off every Sunday. You see, at the end of the day, it's about priorities. And that which you place priority on is reflected in your action. Now, I'm sure as the buzz in this Chinese news network that we have... You may have already heard that I got mad after the Saturday evening service at some of the athletes and coaches who had come to the Saturday evening service because they have an opening ceremony of an event this morning. They were 45 minutes late. And I gathered them after service. And I told them, I told them, If you have a volleyball or basketball game that starts at 3 o'clock and you show up at 3.45, you know what's going to happen? You forfeit the game. They're not going to wait for you. In fact, I bet you that if you've got a 3 o'clock game that you will show up at 2, 2 2.15 to warm up, to stretch, to prepare yourself for that game. Why is it that when it comes to the things of God, 45 minutes being late is no big deal? God will understand. Well, He will understand. But He knows about your priorities. And that's the truth. It's a lesson to me as well. Because when we submit to God, we resist the devil. Resisting the devil means we refute and refuse to hear what he has to offer. And the devil is a wily character. He knows that in the busyness of our lives, we are subject to the pleasures and the busyness of this life. And all he has to do to take us away from God is to whisper things we need to do. Oh, you want to go to church? Oh, you know, it's a beautiful day. It's a great new restaurant. There's a new get-together of your friends from college or high school, there's always something to do. And so that's what the Bible tells us. When we actively submit to God, we naturally resist the devil. And when we actively resist the devil, we naturally submit to God. It goes hand in glove. It works together. Because when we yield our lives to God and make Him as a priority, Satan can't whisper into our ears that there are more important things to do But I know it's hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking from an ivory pulpit and say that I don't struggle with this. It is a daily struggle for me to submit to God by resisting the devil. But at the end of the day, it is a personal choice. You see, when my wife and I go to the grocery store, she is shopping for family essentials. You can find me in one of two places. In the aisle with the chips, and in the aisle with the drinks. And usually, I'm pretty thirsty or hungry. But let's use the example of being thirsty. And I look at that aisle of drinks, and there are so many options. And there's Coke and Cherry Coke and Diet Coke and Coke that uses different type of sweetener. That's only one brand. You got Seven Up. Cherry 7-Up, and boy, they're, they're so colorful. And you got water way down at the bottom. The package isn't very nice, but I know in my mind, in my mind, i got to pick up that water because that's what's good for me. I can decide in my mind that I need to drink water, but until I grab that bottle of water and go to the checkout counter and pay for it and open it and actually drink it and have the water go into my mouth, it doesn't matter. What is in my mind? You see, it happens a lot. I will buy that water. I will pay for it. It goes in the grocery bag. And then I will go to Jollibee and get a Coke. And drink that. Unless that water goes into my mouth to quench my thirst, it doesn't matter what is in my head of what I've chosen. We can think all we want about submitting to God and resisting the devil but until we actually do it, it doesn't count. But when we do it, somehow the pull of the world isn't so special anymore. Because when God takes over priority in our life, it really is priority. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. The second way to fight the draw of the world, number two, it's taken again right out of verse 8. Drawing near to God through purification of life. Drawing near to God through the purification of life. Drawing near to God means you actively want to engage God in a way you've never done before. In intimacy and fellowship, Because that which we are drawn to is that which we will engage, right? If you're drawn to something, you will engage it in all aspects. For example, if you uh, enjoy listening to the music of Taylor Swift and you know that she's coming to Manila, what will you do? You will save up all of your money to try to buy a ticket so that you can be in the concert arena where she is in, you can say, I was in the same building as Taylor Swift, even though there are 30,000 people there. And before that concert, what will you do? You will listen to her music over and over and over again. You will memorize her song so that on that day of the concert, you can sing along with her. Now, if you're not interested in her musical style, then you... Don't really care. You don't understand why people will do what they do, and you won't brave Manila's traffic to listen to her perform life. But boy, if you are engaged, you will make it a priority in your life. In fact, as the concert date gets closer and closer, you will have it circled in your calendar. It will be the most important event in your social calendar, perhaps one month away. There is no birthday party or no other social event that will even come close to that concert as you draw near and as you engage. You will post and blog about it. I can't wait. 18 more days. Next day, I can't wait. 17 more days. The day comes. I can't wait. It's tomorrow. I can't sleep. And then you'll check in here, three hours before concert to get the best seats. No, you've already been assigned a seat, but whatever. And then when she comes on stage, you are Facebook-living it because you are there, you are in that moment, and after the concert, it was the greatest experience. You are engaged. Nothing can take away that joy. Oh boy, I would crave For someone to have that sort of passion when it comes to the worship of God. How many of you on Tuesday say, I can't wait five more days till I can come on Sunday morning and hear Pastor Steve yell at me? Saturday night, I'm going to bed early so that I can wake up with mind refreshed. You step out of this service mind blown, convicted of heart, This is not a priority for most people. This is but an obligation. And it is because we have not drawn near to Him that we cannot engage Him, our Savior. And that's why the Bible clearly states in verse 8, Draw near to God. And what will He do? He will draw near to you. There will come, I hope, in your life sometime when you draw near to Him and the enjoyment of worship will be such that there is no other activity in your social calendar that will be in comparison to the worship of God, both corporately at church or privately in your personal devotions. So how do we start this process to draw near to God? The Bible tells us this process begins with purification, both internal and external Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The cleansing, the washing of hands is a symbolic act of outward cleansing. The purification of heart is an inward cleansing through repentance and confession. We purify ourselves through repentance so that the shed blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sins. Only then can we come before a holy God and engage Him properly and draw near to Him. And because we are cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, He draws near to us. And when we are cleansed and in such sweet fellowship with the Lord, we don't want to ever jeopardize or dirty the relationship we have with Him. We don't want anything to ruin this sweet relationship. And that's why when we draw near to Him and cleanse Ourselves through forgiveness and confession, then somehow the pull of the world Doesn't pull us much longer For example if you have a new car Or you've taken your car for cleaning You know that feeling once your car has been cleaned the insides have been vacuumed At that moment it leaves the car cleaning place the car wash you will do everything you can to keep it clean right? Even a speck of mud, you're going to wipe it because your car is now clean. You will be annoyed if someone tries to dirty your clean car. You will even put newspaper on your floor mats. But then what happens when it gets dirty? When it gets dirty, you just don't care anymore. If it gets dirty, you can get as dirty as it wants. You see, a math nerd like me, if you were to graph out in a chart... Time and dirtiness. We think it's linear, straight line. As long as there's more time, things will naturally get dirty. But no, the reality is this it is exponential. It's a parable up. As time goes on, that dirt shoots up. So it is in the Christian life. So it is in the Christian life. We wonder why men and women who just messed up a little bit here suddenly have fallen off the deep end, they don't love Jesus at all. It's because sin is exponential. It is not a linear movement. So we draw near to Him, we cleanse ourselves, and we keep ourselves clean so that the draw of the world isn't so great anymore. Verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, what in the world is that saying? What James is saying here is that we need to, number three, take life seriously. Taking life seriously is a means by which we fight the draw of worldly pleasure. Because the reality is, many of us are living our lives from pleasure to pleasure. From being satisfied temporarily to being satisfied temporarily. And that's why many working professionals so enjoy partying on the weekends. For them, that is their temporal satisfaction after a long week to find fulfillment. But it is not eternal. It is not lasting. That's why they got to do it every weekend. And you know what? I'll be honest. There was a period in my life where I fell into this trap Somehow, every weekend, Friday night, to go clubbing. Saturday, to go party with my friends. Because that somehow, at the end of a long work week, was the satisfaction of my soul. But it easily dried up by Monday or Tuesday. And so I had to look forward to it again on the weekend. Because I didn't have anything else to look forward to. Other than the temporal pleasures of life. From which the world is so good at offering those many options. The world entices us to live for those things and nothing more. But a life centered upon Christ, it doesn't mean we can't have fun. It doesn't mean we can't have joy. But it means that we remember what life is all about. And that that the life we live today will reverberate throughout all eternity. So an eternal view of life being serious with life reminds us that even in times of great joy and great pleasure and great fun, that God has given us a higher purpose to live for. That's why he warns the readers, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Guys, serious now. If you really want to fight the draw of worldly pleasures, then take life seriously. That's why there's something called the post-holiday blues. After Christmas and New Year's and all the parties are gone, everyone gets sad because there's nothing to look forward to, and so you get depressed. But your life and my life is more than this. And if you find that in your life there's something more to live for, then it will draw you away from the temporal satisfaction of this world. Young people, don't forget this. Learn this lesson now. The world is going to offer you a thousand and one options to fill up your time with pleasures that feel so good but really are temporary. Remember that with the precious time God has given you, live it out for His glory. Take life seriously. There was a poem written by C.T. Studd, a missionary to China, Two lines of the poem may be familiar to us, but it's actually part of a very long poem. It's eight stanzas, but I'm just going to read stanzas five and six because they impact me. Listen carefully. C.T. Studd writes this. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. So true. Do you believe it? Only one life you have to live. It will soon be gone. Only what you do today will last for all eternity. So take life seriously. Finally, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. We love this verse. We often take it out of context. It is in the context for how to fight the draw of the world's pull. You see, number four, it is to humble yourself before the Lord, taken straight out of verse 10. Now, what in the world does humbling have to do with fighting off the draw of the world? You see, the world seeks to entice us with self-glorification, Do you want more recognition? Do you want more money? Do you want a younger wife? Do you want a younger husband? Do you want a husband that's more fit? Do you want a more joyful life? Temporal pleasures, self-glorification, that's how it entices us. But you know when we humble ourselves, we put our lives in the hands of our Lord and we say to Him, whatever you want to do with me, do it as you will. It's a hard one. Whatever you want, Lord, to do with my life, I humbly place my life in your hands. Do with my life as you will. And look at the last part of verse 10. And he will lift you up. I will allow God in his sovereign will to honor me if he so chooses at his time. So when the world says, hey, if you do this, you'll get a lot of honor. I say, it's okay. My life is in the hands of God. He will honor me in his time. It fights the pull of the world. The world says, whoa, if you get into this deal, maybe a bit unethically, you'll make a lot of money. But you say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I place my life in the hands of God and I humbly submit to his will. And one day, if he wants to bless me with monetary gains, so be it at his time. Hey, you want to find joy? And lots of friends in this life. You got to do this, this, and this. You say, thanks, but no thanks. I humbly place my life in the hands of our Heavenly Father. And He will allow me to have the friends that I need to have. And He's the greatest of my friends. You see, the struggle is real only when we kick and are clawing our way to recognition in the sight of other people. But there is no struggle Listen carefully, there is no struggle when we humbly put our lives in the hands of the Heavenly Father and allow Him to honor us and reward us in His own time. It is a tough lesson to learn. It is a reminder to me. When we humbly place ourselves in the presence of God, the world has no pull. But it begins with a Humility of heart that yields control of our lives to allow Him to direct it. So, what will you do? Nothing you haven't heard before. A struggle of a generation past is still the same struggle today. And this struggle is very real the choice between the world or of Christ. But the solutions are assured. I hope this church, the body of Christ, so that it can speak louder than words to a community that is looking at how we live our lives, that if we proclaim with our mouth that Jesus Christ is the single most important relationship in our life, and we hope that they will emulate our walk with Christ, then we better not struggle with this. That they can see with their eyes how we act and how we live, that we have chosen Christ to live this life for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's a good reminder to me. And it is a message of conviction. You know my life, Lord. You know I struggle with this. And I know that every person in this sanctuary has struggled and is struggling with this. It is a very real one. But thank you, Lord, for providing the solution. Thank you that we do not have to fall into the traps of the temporal pleasures that this world offers because you have done in the finished work on the cross the ability for us to move beyond the world's offerings and to invest our life in that which will return grace upon grace. May you use each member of this church to reflect Christ in everything they do. And may this serve as a wake-up call for us. We may think about submitting to you and resisting the devil, but help us to actually do it. In Jesus' name we pray.